Last week, I uh, received a phone call from a pastor, and as I began to listen to him and where he is, he explained that a group of people came into his church, basically, and created a division, and uh, asking me what would I tell him to do. Uh, Basically, I told him after warning them, and if they refuse to repent, tell them that he's going to miss them. As you can understand, I don't know how to mince words. And when you understand this kind of falsehood that they're bringing into the church, you'll understand my reaction. These people, like all peddlers of falsehood, always have an element of truth. Every falsehood has an element of truth, has a shade of truth in it. Every heresy and every false doctrine is almost right, but completely wrong. And that is why it is so deceptive, it's so deceiving, and it's very hard for the unsuspecting to see it. They always come with partial truth and build falsehood on top of it. What these particular people were teaching was this. They said, once you are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are seen by God as righteous. Well, that's right. That is the truth. That is the element of truth in what they're teaching. But here's the falsehood. The falsehood was this. Since you are seen as righteous before God all the time, therefore you should begin to see yourself as righteous all the time. Talking about sin is so negative. Talking about repentance is so negative. Just be affirming all the time. Ignore sin. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about repentance. And that is a falsehood. Those people who peddle cheap grace must know something that the risen Lord Jesus Christ obviously did not know. Why? Because five times out of the seven messages that he sent to the churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, five out of the seven he said and he called the church to repentance. He was not calling unbelievers out there. He was calling the Christians to turn from their sin. Those who seek to soft-pedal the gospel cheapen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells the repentant church in Corinth, he tells them those words in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9. He said, I rejoice. Why? Because you were grieved. But that's not where the sentence stops. I rejoice because you were grieved unto repentance. Grieving has to get you to the point of repentance. And then he goes on in verse 10, he said, For godly grief produces repentance, but worldly grief produces sin. Shedding just some tears and feeling sorry about what happened, that is not repentance. That is worldly grief. That is not godly grief. God's grace leads us to repentance, not to complacency. It is the love of God that drives me to my knees. The love of God that drives me to appreciation and thanksgiving. It is the love of God that fills me up with tears in my eyes. That God loves me with all my shortcomings. And it drives me to repentance, not complacency. If sometimes when we wrong somebody, we consider it right, I hope that we do, that when you wrong somebody, you go back and ask for their forgiveness. You apologize to them. And if we do that to fellow human beings, how much more should we do it to the holy God, the righteous God who loved us so much? In fact, we bring pain upon ourselves. We bring pain upon others. When we ignore that fact... We ignore the fact of examining our lives when we ignore the fact that realizing that we do fall short of the glory of God and repent, forsake, 
turn around. Ask God to strengthen us for the next step. <laughs> I thought of the little boy when I thought of these people who say repentance is not right for the Christians. I thought of the little boy whose hand was caught in a very, very expensive vase. And the parents were applying soap suds. They were applying cooking oil, trying to get the boy's hand out. And they couldn't. Finally, they said, we have to face the fact we must break it. It's so expensive, but we have to break it. Upon that point, the little boy cried out. He said, would it help if I let loose of the penny in my hand? (laughs) Repentance is often letting loose of that penny that we're holding on to in our hand, whatever it may be for you. In today's message, we're going to see that winners... Lead others to repentance. Not ignore the need for repentance, but lead others to repentance. Repent themselves and lead others to repentance. We're going to see that in the life of Joseph. We're going to see a model of a godly man, of a godly life. Joseph knew unless his brothers were ready to the point of repenting of their sin that they've committed 22 years ago. They will cheapen the grace and the forgiveness. Joseph knew that until his brothers faced the pangs of sin, the sin they've committed 22 years ago, they would not appreciate him canceling the consequences of their sin. He had all the power in the world. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he was going to forgive them. But he cannot forgive them until they come to the point of asking for forgiveness. And often the Lord deals with us that way. He will wait until we come to the point of repentance. You know, many a televangelist have really cheapened the biblical injunction of repentance. And yet, that was the very first thing that Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus did. The first thing he began his ministry at the age of 30, he was going around saying, Repent, Mark 1, 14, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I I don't understand how these people can read the Bible and miss it. I don't understand... If they think that Noah, his message on the steps of the ark was not, something good is going to happen to you today. I hope it will. (laughs) I want it to. Amos was not in conflict with the high priests of Israel because he was proclaiming, confess it and you'll possess it. Jeremiah was not put in the pit for preaching, I am okay and you're okay. Daniel was not put in the den of lions for telling people all possibility thinking will remove mountains. Not in your life. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will remove mountains. John the Baptist was not forced into the wilderness and eventually was beheaded because he was preaching, smile, God loves you. God loves you. That's what a fact that is. But he proclaimed the gospel of the coming Messiah. And he said, it is a double-edged sword. It is good news and bad news. It is only good news for those who receive it. Jesus Christ himself was not crucified on the cross because he told that all the roads lead to Rome. The apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome and then was beheaded for proclaiming God is in heaven and all is right with the world. He didn't do that. These are all sales gimmicks. They all feel-good type of preaching. It is all untrue. It has some truth in it, but falsehood. It is almost right, but totally wrong. Someone said, he said, these days, we go to church and we sing just as I am, and we go out just as we came. (laughs) 
The Christian who has stopped repenting, listen to me please, the Christian who stopped repenting has stopped growing. Nevin said, real repentance consists in the heart being broken for sin and from sin. D.L. Moody said, repentance is a tear in the eye of faith. Dyer said, there is no going through fair heaven of glory without sailing through the narrow straits of repentance. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 42, as we look together in this series of sermons from the life of this great man, Joseph. Genesis 42. Joseph now has been managing the booming Egyptian economy. Seven years are now going to be followed by seven years of the Great Depression. They're around the corner. He came through these unprecedented seven years of industrial growth and agricultural growth and economic growth. Now they're going to come to the seven tough years. Now during those seven tough years, they're not just going to affect Egypt as a country. They're going to affect the whole region, the known world at that time. All their neighbors. And not only Egyptians are going to come to Joseph and ask for help so they can continue to live and survive. Whole nations are going to be coming to Joseph and asking for help so they too can survive. I want you to listen to me very carefully because I really feel that this is something very important for us. I reflected upon why did God bless Egypt. And it's not only for those seven years, but even beyond the other seven depression years, it was blessed for many years to come. Hundreds of years of blessing. And I can tell you this, my conclusion is this, that God blessed Egypt because of Joseph. And I began to reflect that the main reason why America has been blessed of God like no other nation ever existed, the reason why America is the bastion of freedom in the world, that has been, the main reason why America is a haven for the whole world today, is that same reason why God blessed Egypt through Joseph. It is the early founders who came here not seeking economic prosperity as much as they were seeking to honor God. And because God is true to His promise, never goes back to His promise, because He said, I will honor those who honor me. And He honored Joseph. He honored the whole country because of Joseph. He has been honoring us for the past 200 years because of those founding fathers. And that is why it is so important in these days, it is vitally important that we call this generation to come back to honoring the God of the forefathers of this great nation. At this point of his life, Joseph was about 39 years of age. The seven years of plenty were over. And now the tide has turned. And just as Joseph told Pharaoh when he interpreted that dream of the seven booming years and the seven years of famine, it has taken place like clockwork. When you think about it as a 39-year-old man, that's a heavy responsibility. It is an awesome stuff. To give a 39-year-old man, this is not just the future of the country, but the whole region. (laughs) Joseph has come a long way since the days of Dothan, hasn't he? But you know what? Reflect on this. Joseph would have not been able to handle all of this power, all of this responsibility, if it was not for those 13 years of testing, the 13 years of, of trying, 13 years of shaping. 
It is a lot easier to get close to the Lord when, thing, when the walls are caving on you. I know that. We are human beings. That's our nature. And God knows that too. It is a lot easier to get close to the Lord when the tire is about to go flat than when the ride is smooth. It is a lot easier that way. Crisis always forces us on our face. It forces us to cry to the Lord and call upon Him. And I was reminded this week of the two people who died and went to heaven. One was a New York bus driver and the other one was a preacher. And when they both died and one day went to heaven, the Apostle Peter gave the bus driver a huge mansion. And then he went to the minister and he gave him a little mud hut. Now he was one of those very dignified ministers. He was not like me. <laughs> and he was indignant. And he went to the Apostle Peter with the plum in the mouth and he began to talk to him. And I said, listen, son Peter. He said, I have done the great things for God. I was in the ministry of the gospel. I get this hut. And look at this. The York bus driver, he gets that mention. Peter looked up at him and said, there's a few things you need to understand. When you preached, people went to sleep. When this bus driver drove, he made people pray and cry to God. (laughs) But this wasn't the case with Joseph. Look carefully at the life of this great man. He was as faithful in the palace as he was in the prison. It made no difference. Whether he's in a crisis or in a crown. With all the power and the prestige... Joseph continued to trust God just as he did in the times of trial. In prosperity, Joseph resisted the temptation of pride, resisted the temptation of arrogance. Just as he resisted the temptation of bitterness in the times of adversity. Well, look at Genesis 42. There you're going to notice a gut-wrenching experience for all Joseph. It's not easy for him to go through what he went through, but you'll understand why in a minute. He went through this facing of his brothers after 22 years. Yet, in the whole dialogue, you'll never find, you never see the spirit of revenge anywhere in Joseph's life. No spirit of revenge. No no vengeance is occupying a dark corner of his heart somewhere. And it's manifesting itself. Not in this dialogue. While he was trying to induce his brothers to repentance, he never once was doing it out of selfish motive. While Joseph was forcing his brothers to deal with the underlying hidden sin that has been buried there below the surface for 22 years. Never did he allow himself to wallow in the murky mud of resentment. Not once. In fact, we see how Joseph dealt with the past. We see how Joseph actually learned that lesson that the Apostle Paul, years and years and years later, has told us that to forget what is behind and strain toward the goal that is in front of you. Joseph has learned that. He has learned of dealing with his past and put it behind him once and for all. And here is the evidence of that. Two boys, two sons that God blessed him with. What does he name the first? Manasseh. The root word of Manasseh means in three languages, actually, Aramaic, Arabic, and Hebrew. The root word means to completely forget. I mean, completely erase from your mind. Manasseh, he said, I am calling him that because God made me forget all my troubles of the past. 
I put them behind me. I put them behind me once and for all. And the second boy comes in and he calls him Ephraim, which means fruitful, which means God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph dealt with his past. He dealt with his past trouble. And he went on. He moved on. And you and I must learn to do the same. In the first five verses, I'll summarize that chapter. It's a long one. In the first five verses of Genesis 42... You see that the famine hit now all over the place. Not just Egypt, but in Canaan. All of the whole area we call the Middle East today. So when the famine hit, Jacob looks at his sons and he said, Stop being space cadets. Stop being stargazers. That's literally, it's a use of translation, but literally that's what it means. Stop being stargazers. Go down to Egypt and get some food. We heard there's food there. Well, just imagine these boys, I mean, they hear the word Egypt, and all of a sudden they get some epilepsy inside of them. They get some pangs of even much worse than, than hunger pains. <laughs> and you know what it's called? Unconfessed sin. Jacob got 66 mouths to feed, so he said, go to Egypt. And he said, Egypt, that's where the Ishmaelites were going 22 years ago. That's where we sold our brother. <laughs> that's where he is. We go to Egypt, my soul and body. What about if we go there and and find him waiting tables there at the Nile restaurant, you know? What what, what about if he's a valet parking camels out in the the Nile's Inn? What are we going to do? What if we run into somebody who knows him and recognizes him and knows the trouble and then seek vengeance? So with hearts heavy, even heavier than the saddles that they were carrying, they go down to Egypt. Same road that Joseph went on 22 years earlier as a little 17-year-old boy crying his heart out. Isn't it amazing God has a way of dealing with things? Same road, same route. Now they're trotting their camels down there just as where they, where they sold their brother. I want to tell you this, and I'm not going to dwell on it. Sooner or later, you have to face your Egypt's. So they go with sagging spirit, shuffling along the same desert road, carrying with them 22-year-old unconfessed sin. Sin of which they have not repented of. There is only one place where you can bury the guilt and sin of the past. It is not in your heart. It is not in your memory. It is not in a closet somewhere. If you decide to hide there or any other place, you need to dig it out, lift it up, hand it to the Lord, let Him bury it in His precious blood. Hear me right. Sins concealed by men or women, by us, are never canceled by God. Sins that are concealed by us are never canceled by God. Why? I don't know why. I don't know why God does this. He says it in His Word from one side of the book to the other. He said that. Until you confess, unless you repent, and I can go through a concordance and give it to you all. The only release from unconfessed sin, the only relief that can come from past guilt, the only peace that you will ever have, will come only 
after you bury it under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk out a free man and a free woman. Well, old Jacob doesn't send all his 11 boys. He sends only 10. <laughs> he keeps back Benjamin. Well, you see, Benjamin is Joseph's full brother. Benjamin is the only remaining link with his beloved Rachel, who now is dead. Benjamin is now the object of Jacob's, all of Jacob's love. Benjamin not only became Benjamin in himself, but he also took Joseph's love in Jacob's heart. And the dotting dad isn't about to let the baby boy out of his sight, even if the baby boy is 30 years of age. <laughs> Verses 6 to 17, look at it very carefully because there you get a picture of Genesis 37 and verse 7. It was a picture of Joseph's dream. Look at those verses, and you compare them together, put them together, and you'll see it. That dream was that his brother's sheaves were bowing to Joseph's sheaf. You know, I don't know how long ago, maybe over 25 years probably, for this dream to be fulfilled. And you know, God works slowly. Oh, sometimes for some of us it's too slow. But he always gets the job done. He always gets the job done. Why did Joseph's brothers bow to him when they came in? Well, it could be lots of reasons, cultural reasons, this reasons. But I tell you what, I believe there's one overriding reason. And that is the fulfillment of God's dream to Joseph. It was in detail that nobody can miss it. You can't say it was circumstantial. The brothers come in, and they didn't recognize Joseph. They thought, well, he's just uh, one of those Egyptian rulers, one of the pharaohs. It's been 22 years, and last time they saw him, he was a 17-year-old boy. Now he's a grown man, dressed like Egyptians. Uh, the Bible said he was using an interpreter, obviously talking like Egyptians, and they didn't recognize him. And Joseph now puts him to the test. He puts them to the test to see if they had dealt with that 22-year-old guilt. You notice what they said? He said, the other brother is no more. <laughs> they didn't say he's dead. <laughs> they said, he's just no more. And the guilt pangs began to rise at that point. And Joseph discovered that they have not dealt with that sin. You know, Jesus was testing Philip one time. And the 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children, were there and they needed food. And they said, Philip, how are we going to provide for them? And Philip was getting his calculators and trying to work out what's going to happen, what's, how we're going to deal with this, and realize the impossibility of it. You see, Jesus knew that he supernaturally, divinely, is going to provide for them. He was just asking Philip to test him. Now, Philip had no idea that this was a pop quiz. <laughs> but while Philip was thinking, God was providing while you and I are thinking God is always providing. He waits to see if his brothers are going to come up with it. No. And God does the same. He waits to see if you are leaning on him, continue to lean on him, or you're trying to go to business for yourself. He waits, but he wants to see if you're really leaning on his everlasting arms, or you are trying to do it on your own. And he waits. How does Joseph test them? Well, he said to them, he said, Now, go back and bring your brother that you said this back home, Benjamin. Verse 21, 
I think that is the verse that gave Joseph the clue that they have not dealt with their sin. And it is this. 22 years of it. Surely we're being punished because they knew their father would freak out when he hears about Benjamin. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. How distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life and we would not listen. And that is why this distress has come upon us. There's something very important here. I want you to listen very carefully about unconfessed sin. It can make you see every pain in your life as God's punishment to you for that sin. If it is unconfessed in your life. The people are going around and saying, well, God is going to get me. God is punishing me. God is doing this to me. What they really are saying is, there is an unconfessed sin in my life that I haven't dealt with. When you are carrying guilt that have not surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, covered by His blood, often two reactions will take place. Both of them are anti-biblical. Both of them are wrong. For the Bible gives us one only alternative to deal with it. You either see every distress as God's punishment and and you become glutton for punishment and you wait for it and every trouble comes and says, Oh, God is doing it to me. That's wrong. All you do is some homosexual, militant homosexual groups are doing to deal with their guilt. You know why they're so militant? Why they wanted to invade the churches? Why they're trying to get acceptance by government? They're actually trying to deal with the guilt that's inside of them. They know jolly well that they are living against the plan of God, the purpose of God. They know that it is abomination unto God, is not acceptable to God. They know it's not an alternate lifestyle. They use all that as facade to cover up for the enormous guilt that's going on inside of them. So the way they deal with that guilt is they say, well, you know, people who are calling us to repentance, people are trying to love us into the kingdom, they really are just homophobic. I have a very simple response to this. I've never been phobic, homo or otherwise. Both reactions are wrong. The Bible has given us an only one way to deal with guilt and sin. His name is Jesus. God has provided us only one way to deal with guilt and sin. It is called the cross of Jesus Christ. God has made it possible for us to be freed from guilt and sin. It is called the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has opened a door of escape from guilt and sin. It is called Calvary. God has given us the means by which we can get rid of guilt and get rid of sin. And it is called the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dealing with it any other way is only prolonged the agony. It is my prayer today if one person living with guilt in their life, whatever it may be, I don't care what it is, that you will come to the blood of Jesus Christ today and get it covered and washed. Joseph sees his brothers have not dealt, have not confessed and have not repented So he prolonged the test. Just think for a moment, hypothetically. Had Joseph just forgiven them at the first blush, as soon as he saw them, they would have never appreciated that forgiveness. They really would not have. You know human nature as well as I do. Had Joseph just called one of his servants, it will take care of them, provide them with all that they need, and everything else is fine. They would have never come to grips with their act of sin against their brother. Communion is not magic. There's no magic in in bread and wine. The reason we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ one service a week in the first day of the week, it is that we may never, never, never forget that your salvation and my salvation may be free, but it's not cheap. 
It cost the eternal Son of God His precious blood. Don't forget that. We don't preach easy believism. We don't preach the gospel of naming it and claiming it, blabbing it and grabbing it. We preach the gospel of repentance and free grace of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Joseph prolongs the test. While he provided his family with food, he even gave them the money back in the sacks. Yet he awaits for their repentance. He keeps Simeon, one of the brothers, who was a mass murderer from way back. Most likely he was the one who wanted to kill Joseph. He keeps him into his custody. And he sends the rest of them back to bring Benjamin. Well, the father Jacob hears that the governor of Egypt wants Benjamin to go with his brothers. He wants to see Benjamin. And he literally freaks out of his mind. Listen to what he said. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything has come against me. How many times have you looked at your circumstances as you see them? And you felt that the walls are closing in from every direction. That literally there is no way out. How many times have you looked at your circumstances and you felt so overwhelmed? How many times have you looked at the facts as you can see them? Not as the way God sees them, but as you can see them, as I can see them. And said, oh, everything has come against me. I have no way out. I'm cornered from every direction. That's how Jacob was feeling. My dear friends, I want to tell you, we don't always see all the pieces of the puzzle. We really don't. It's seldom that we do. But you know, God does not only see the pieces of the puzzles. He sees them already put together. Because there is no past, present, and future with God. As I bring this message to a close, I want to ask you a personal question. And the answer to it has to be only between you and God. Have you ever kept a sin in your life that you refuse to confess it and forsake it and leave it? It's causing you a lot of pain and you don't understand. But I want to tell you today, you can give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can deal with it. You can confess it to him where you are. Probably as a Christian, if you are a Christian intellectually, you know that the only relief is going to come is when you confess that sin. The only relief you're going to get is when you bury it under the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to pray that this relief be yours today. You know, you can't really prepare a sermon like this without the Holy Spirit, of course, speak to you first as the speaker, as the preacher as a proclaimer of this word. And I prayed as the Holy Spirit was ministering to me that he will come and minister to each one of you today. Some of you are in deep, dark tunnels right now. Some of you are suffering physically. Some of you are suffering emotionally. And I have a word from the Lord on this. And the word is this. Let go. Let's pray. Father God, you know the heart of each one of us. Lord, if I, as a human being, being a pastor of your flock, can weep when I think of the suffering of my friends, how much more? You must feeling right now. Lord, we can't see all the pieces of the puzzle, but we know that you have them all put together. I lift up to you in prayer those who have not known the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior and Lord. 
they will receive you for your forgiveness according to your promise. Those who have prayed of letting go an unconfessed sin in their life, we ask your blood of Jesus Christ to cover them and bless them. And Father the God, who those who have been seeking you for a long time will pray that you will give them the word of assurance that you are yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you for your promises in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.